0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
1: Live from Washington, Kaylee Lines off today. And greetings on this Wednesday edition of Balance of Power as we start with Bloomberg's poll that's making waves throughout the campaign cycle here. We're doing this uh, month to month, tracking seven critical swing states and the latest now out. We ran this poll between Iowa and New Hampshire, and the findings are not great for Joe Biden as we see Donald Trump continuing to lead the president in these states that will likely decide the election. We're joined by two experts to talk about this here inside the Bloomberg Newsroom in Washington, Laura Davison, who's Got her fingerprints all over our reporting here. It's great to see you and great work, Laura. Also from Morning Consult, our partners on this poll, Eli Yoakley, uh, the political analyst. Eli, it's great to see you. Thanks for being a part of the broadcast today. What are we learning here that is new, Laura? You've added a legal component here as I read uh, our reporting at Bloomberg. It's not just the horse race you're talking about, but how voters in these important states might react to a conviction or even a, a prison sentence which is incredible to say out loud about our former
2: president. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the top line here, the horse race is not good for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. He is trailing Trump in all seven of these swing states that we're looking at. And, you know, these are the states that are going to decide the general election yeah. uh, most likely. Do you want to start
1: there and see what these we, look we like? We can,
2: but, but, he, but here's the flip side. On the legal issue, that is one of the few bright spots for Biden in this <laughs> poll and one of the few dark spots for Trump. It shows that in these swing states, 53% of voters say they would not vote for Trump if he's convicted of. A crime. So that's not great. I mean, obviously, that's not a that's not a huge majority that is isn't necessarily handed over to Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. It's also important to note that it is not certain by any means that there will be any sort of conviction before Election Day in November. There's four different cases pending. Yep. Uh, but there's a lot of delays. And Trump, of course, is the master of, of delays and and stalling sure. tactics. So he could, uh, you know, th- this data point is only uh, relevant if there's a conviction, which, you know, there is no certainty of that.
1: And we don't even know when a trial might start. Uh, in fact, Eli, it's good to see you. Uh welcome back. Just to add on to what we were just talking about here, 23% of swing state Republicans say they would not support Trump if convicted. What does that number tell you about the way voters are watching these trials, uh, most of which have yet to unfold?
3: You know, it lines up pretty closely with what we're seeing in our national tracking of the primary, which shows that about one in five republican primary voters still don't back trump clearly there's a trunk a chunk of the republican electorate that's still wary of this guy um i think the number that stood out mm. to me the most on this question was the fact that eight percent of people who are saying right now that they're uh, planning to vote for donald trump would be very unwilling to do so um you know right now it's joe biden who has a big base problem in the mm general election electorate. That's something we've seen month after month in our surveys with you in the swing states and in our national tracking. This could help negate that for Biden when it comes to Trump. It could help weaken a chunk of his of Trump supporters and open them up as we look forward to, to November. Um, it's not certain. And the other thing is timing matters a lot in politics when this is top of mind for voters, but you know, clearly it's a vulnerability for form the former president.
1: Let's be a little more specific here on the states, Uh, Laura. We're talking in all of these polls that we've been running with Morning Consult. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Trump is ahead in all of them in a hypothetical matchup. Uh, Some more than others. We see a three-point spread in Arizona, but a 10-point spread, for instance, in North Carolina. Give us a broader view on why these seven...
2: So these are the states that historically have have been the decision makers, as well as states that Democrats, like North Carolina, for example, have kind of been eyeing as states that they may be able to win in the future. Obviously, a 10-point spread is not a good sign for Joe right. Biden, you know, at least right now. Uh, but this is really a, a worrying sign. We've been doing this poll for a couple of months, um, uh, for Biden at least, and um, that uh, – He is trending downward. You know, when we first did this poll, he was tied in Michigan. He was up in a handful of states. But we've only seen this gap between um, Trump and Biden widen, um, Mm -hmm. all in the favor of Trump, as we've been doing this since November.
1: Amazing. And it seems, uh, Eli, that Donald Trump has the border issue, immigration issue at his back here. What did we learn? And what does Joe Biden need to worry about? We just came from Iowa and New Hampshire, where immigration, the border, topped the economy uh, by a long shot for voters, Republican voters in both states.
3: I mean, the border issue, immigration generally, has been a problem for President Biden since day one. Even when he was pretty popular with the electorate, more voters did not disapproved of some of his early executive actions on this. Clearly, this is a spot where Republicans have an advantage. And as we've seen the numbers, as folks are less likely to cite the economy as their number one issue and forced to pick one, The uptick has gone to immigration. And I think you're seeing Republicans right now jumping on this pretty heavily with the efforts to impeach the Homeland Security secretary. Um, It was going to be interesting to watch moving forward. I mean, right now, Joe Biden, uh, more voters blame him than any other domestic actor for the state of of the border of the border. Um, The question we're going to be watching is if conservatives listen to Donald Trump on Capitol Hill and kill this immigration compromise measure that's emerging from the Senate. Will voters take notice? And what will President Joe Biden do about it? I mean, right now, only like 14% of swing state voters blame Republicans in Congress for the situation at the U.S.-Mexican border. It's about the same as who blame Trump. Mm -hmm. The Biden campaign, the White House, will have a very good case to make that Republicans in Congress and, President Donald Trump are to blame for something not happening to fix this. The question will be whether voters are willing to listen and whether they care about some of this inside baseball that's playing out in Washington right now.
1: This is really smart. And, and Laura, I don't know about you. You wear a couple of hats around here and you've spent time covering the Hill. I'm just not sure I have a lot of faith, enough faith in the messaging machine uh, coming from the Democratic side on this to get people's attention to realize in the minutia of this process that there's some sort of blame game going on here that might favor Democrats. But let's talk about these numbers. 61% of swing state voters say Joe Biden is at least somewhat responsible for the wave of migrants at the border. 30% in contrast, blame the Trump administration, 38% congressional Republicans. There's a lot of work to be done, a lot of wood to chop for Democrats there.
2: Yeah, immigration is not an issue that Democrats naturally want to talk about. I mean, they realize the White House realizes there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Republicans certainly want to talk about this, and they have been talking about it. And there's been this deal on Capitol Hill, a bipartisan deal that they've been trying to hash out in the Senate. Uh, but, you know, just in the past couple of weeks, we've started to hear rumblings from Republicans being yeah. like, whoa, 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 let's not cut a deal. This right. is an issue we want to run on. And if we hand Joe Biden a win, that takes away a lot of our leverage. You know, we even saw James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma, um, who was helping uh, a bro- broker this deal in the Senate yep. was censured by his own state party because they were saying, <laughs> "Look, he's you know giving things to Joe Biden, giving things to the Democrats." So this is really kind of where you see the divide. Of yeah. Republicans see this as a winning issue, and this poll really bears that out. They're able to to come out on top here, and they want this to be an issue. You see this talked about on Fox News. You yep. see in, that's borne out on the data. We call it sort of a Fox News effect here. Republicans, 65 and older, particularly men, see immigration as a as a top issue, and it's only rising. Well The
1: speaker says it's D.O.A. in the House after all the work that Lang cinema, Murphy put together, never mind a guy named Mayorkas, who's apparently going to be impeached in the next seven days. Those were the people at the table. Uh, and I wonder your thought on, on where Eli is going here. Let's say this deal really falls apart. Democrats start blaming Republicans. Do the numbers move in in our poll?
2: It's possible. It certainly hands Democrats the argument to say, "Look, Republicans aren't serious on the border. They don't want to find solutions. They don't want to govern. They just want to have this be a political issue." And real people yeah. are suffering in the in the interim. Uh, you know whether that message resonates. You know we've seen time and time again, Biden just can't get credit for anything. And this, you know, could be another one of those situations.
1: Well, I'll tell you what. You start uh, looking at this more broadly, Eli, and and I don't mean to put words in your mouth here, but it, when you see Joe Biden losing to Donald Trump, realizing this is hypothetical and we're early on here in all seven of these key swing states that you've seized on in our poll, what you're telling our viewers and listeners is that if the election were held today, Joe Biden would
3: lose, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what we saw last week. We saw Joe, Donald Trump's strongest standing in our national polling that we're conducting every every day here. Uh, Clearly, Joe Biden, Donald Trump isn't in the driver's seat of the general election, just like he is um, in the Republican primary, or at least what exists of it still. Um, Joe Biden has a big base problem. It is something that he could try to recover from. It seems like the easiest way of going about this. But, you know, I think as we look ahead and Donald Trump starts to take more center stage on the minds of the American people who haven't really been tuned in to a lot of its legal Problems, a lot of the things he said during the Republican primary, a good chunk of the electorate we're going to be watching is the folks who don't like either candidate. And it's a good mm-hmm. chunk of the swing state voters. And this might be the one good thing that we're starting to notice in this polling for Joe Biden. It's that since we started doing this in October, the share of these double haters, as uh, I think Amy Walters from the political report calls them, who back- Joe Biden has been increasing and the share who backed Donald Trump has been decreasing to the point where Joe Biden has a bit bit of an advantage with these voters. A lot of them are still on the sidelines. I think those are the folks we're going to be keeping our eyes on in the coming months as we continue to do this. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, this is, you know, the moment that no labels has been waiting for. Uh, And I feel like I need to ask you about RFK Jr. because maybe we're not talking about him enough. He raised seven million dollars, Laura. In the last quarter. I heard as much about RFK as some other candidates on the trail in both Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, In New Hampshire, he's resonated quite a bit with potential Trump voters. What kind of an impact could he have if it is a Trump versus Biden race?
2: So what a polling has shown is that he's polling relatively equally between Trump and Biden, but as, as his name ID gets higher, as people kind of understand more, mm-hmm. his his policy issues certainly would seem to pull more from Trump supporters sure. than from Biden supporters. One caution though, he did raise seven million dollars. That's that's not too shabby, yeah. but he spent seven point seven. So you know he's he's spending more uh, than he's brought in, but he's been able to appeal to um, you know sort of a a swath of the donor class, some crypto folks, mm-hmm. um, other folks uh who have been giving him money uh but you know as we see the race consolidate you know there may be and, and people are are kind of in this point where they're going out of wishing season If here's yeah. who i'd like to have run to okay it looks like it's going to be trump and biden again and i need to you know either get behind one of them or, or just throw my hands up and not vote
1: the donor split is fascinating to me because we're getting uh fundraising numbers now eli we'll get more today uh from the fec filings but of that seven million i mentioned uh It breaks down in an interesting way. Five million came from itemized donations greater than $200. Roughly 224 grand of those itemized donations were from donors who had given to Trump in 2020. Just over 100,000 came from donors to Joe Biden's last campaign. Should we be paying more attention uh, in mainstream media coverage of this campaign to RFK Jr.? We certainly see Democrats get real upset when no labels comes up.
3: Eli, how about RFK Jr.? I think the data suggests that over the long term that RFK could probably end up being more of a problem for Donald Trump. I mean, the kinds of thing he talks about on the campaign trail, um, the kind of conspiracies that he's leaned into are much more attractive to the kind of voters who we think would be inclined to support Donald Trump moving forward. Um, You know, the thing to watch here is the fact that every time we've surveyed um, in these swing states, RFK Jr. has gotten more famous and more popular. People are taking note of him on the ground in the way they aren't other candidates like Cornell West or Jill Stein. He's got quite an advantage when it comes to attracting voters' attention. The question is going to be in November whether they're willing to pull a pull a lever for him. Mm-hmm. You also wonder the contrast.
1: If we had three, and this is possible, candidates on stage in the general election debates, assuming Donald Trump shows up for them, Imagine that stage with Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and RFK Jr. and the impact that that would have optically on this race.
2: And it really it it would change the dynamic um, drastically. You know, mm-hmm. both uh, that gives another option. It also gives permission for people who, you know, if you're just looking at a binary like we were in 2020, people yep. pick one. Right. If uh, you know, if RFK Jr. is there, then maybe you see you know, Miriam Williamson or or mm-hmm. Cornell West or some of these other candidates. People say, oh, well, you know, if, if Republicans kind of have their second place option, maybe I could pick uh, you know, someone else. And that totally blows open the whole race. You know, we know this is going to be close. Sure. Um, you know, a couple percentage points matters a huge deal.
1: Well, that's right. My gosh. Uh, you get three on that stage, Eli, you you do a Ross Perot, you get 20% here, or 19%. And that's the race, potentially. Fascinating. We'll do this again in a month. Is that right? We're doing a monthly roll here. Yep, every month until
2: the election Um, day.
1: I want this exact same panel for next time. Laura Davison, we rely on you and thank you for great reporting. And Eli Oakley, of course, our partner at Morning Consult. Great to see you, Eli. Thanks for the deep dive on the numbers. We have a lot to learn, and we're going to compare notes later in the program with our panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Up ahead, do we need a new CHIPS Act? The last one left some important stuff out that we're going to talk about next.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: hearing a lot. Lately about reshoring as the chip companies deliver their quarterly earnings results. Been hearing a lot about money being doled out as well. Big grants for the chip makers from the CHIPS Act. This is the first big chunk of that $39 billion in grants that we talked about during the debate around this bill. And you know lawmakers love to take credit for the CHIPS Act bringing manufacturing back here in the U.S. The problem is if you don't bring the whole chip here, you still have to go back through Asia. And a fascinating conversation we had just about a year ago with David Child, who specializes in this, at the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. He writes in National Defense, just try to get your head around this. Remembering, we're reshoring chip manufacturing here domestically. You hear Intel and and even Taiwan Semiconductor talk about their plans for massive foundries here in the U.S. Consider this, as David writes, what was lost in the legislative process was the rest of the microelectronics stack. Substrates connect a computer chip to a printed circuit board, which in turn connects to an electronic device. Chips don't function without those two components. And we now make only 4% of the world's supply of PCBs and less than 1% of those substrates. They're not in the CHIPS Act. David writes, what this means is most of the new U.S. chip fabrication facilities, this is the part where your head explodes, now being built with the CHIPS Act funding and private investments will still be shipped back to Asia to be assembled. And he's with us now. David Schild, it's great to see you in Washington. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for being here.
4: You're the executive director of this association. Do you have ears on Capitol Hill? Yeah, we're seeing encouraging signs. The CHIPS Act generated $52 billion in taxpayer funds as an investment in semiconductors, but the private sector is putting its own money at the table. It's mm-hmm. generated almost $450 billion in private commitments, and we think that the private sector will follow public action. We need the same initiatives for the rest of the technology stack. And that would be a similar investment uh, by the government? Or are we in that $50 billion range for the rest? Of the stack? I think we can do it for a lot less. We've can got, we? yes, bipartisan support for support for the rest of the technology stack. That's printed circuit boards yeah. and integrated circuit substrates. There's a bipartisan bill in the House. and We hope to have companion legislation soon in the Senate. Uh-huh. So for the, you know, the, the not so tech savvy listening or watching, this is like the green piece of plastic
1: you put the semiconductor on, right? That's part of the people can picture a circuit board in their head and those other components in the stack, where are they being made? Let me guess, China and
4: elsewhere in Asia. Sure, printed circuit boards are actually a complex laminate of woven glass, copper foil, and other highly engineered materials, and they really make everything possible from F-150s to F-35s, everything has A circuit board, an IC substrate, and, of course, that all-important semiconductor. And you're absolutely right. Over the last 30 years, what we've seen is a severe contraction in the ability of the United States to manufacture these technologies. 30 years ago, we had 2,200 companies making printed circuit boards. Today, we're down to less than 150. And as you said, now, instead of having 30% of global market share, we have 4% of global market share. So it's a really steep slide that we need to reverse. How many members do you have? We've got 50 members, and we're growing every day. Our yeah. industry saw during the CHIPS Act three years ago how important government action was, and that's why we were founded. So where are lawmakers on this? There was a big debate over the CHIPS Act. This thing took months and months. You and I talked about this in the process, mm-hmm. but you didn't get acknowledgment from Capitol Hill. I think the CHIPS Act was a very important down payment. It was a very important first step. Now we need to finish the fight. Now we need to invest in the rest of the technology stack. Lawmakers hear this, they understand how we can't have foreign dependency in these critical national security supply chains. Mm -hmm. So we've seen a lot of positive indications on Capitol Hill. Talk to me about the scale uh,
1: of, of this whole industry. People think chips, they think about their laptop, computer, their phone, maybe an EV. You're talking about
4: jets and missiles here. How, how far reaching is this? Printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates are ubiquitous. Without that full technology stack, most of modern yep. life isn't possible. And so you know, our chip makers would tell you we have 13% of the world's supply made here in the United States. That's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. We need to grow not just capacity, but we need to innovate. We need to make the next generation of semiconductors here in America. We would say the same thing about the rest of the microelectronic stack. Let's build the boards and substrates of the future right here in the USA. Did you come up with F-150s to F-35s? Uh, Whoever came up with that should get a raise. That's very good. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, but you're writing in national defense. There's a reason for that. Yeah, absolutely. Almost every critical national security system – has these technologies as a core of what makes them the world's best. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing in the recent national defense industrial strategy is the Pentagon saying to Congress, we have identified gaps in our supply chains, we have identified single points of failure, we have identified weaknesses. Now we need to act to correct those to make sure that we can get the raw materials that we need, the complicated microelectronics that we need to fund the systems that keep our men and women safe. Is the Pentagon an ally? Are the defense contractors allies? In this movement? Absolutely. I think everybody wants secure and resilient supply chains. Everybody wants to make sure that we're working with partners and allies to deliver these goods and services. Mm-hmm. And I'm encouraged by what you're seeing with the Assistant Secretary of Defense, um, all the way up to uh, the Secretary of Defense. I think there's an understanding now that looking inside our supply chains and asking hard questions is going to lead to real action. Yeah, look, we talk about what would happen if Taiwan were cut off. Um, it's, it's a little more nuanced,
1: I guess, when it comes to these printed circuit boards and the other components that we're discussing, because a bad conversation between President Biden and President Xi can lead to a disruption here. We've seen certainly the impact on components that NVIDIA is making, uh, the ASML story. These can creep out of nowhere. It doesn't, I guess my point, only take a blockade to cause a disruption here.
4: No, there are natural and man-made disasters. The COVID-19 pandemic was really a wake-up call about the fragility great, great of many of our supply yeah. chains. Just in recent weeks, we've seen seaborne transport be disrupted in a way that I don't think anybody really anticipated. Mm-hmm. So it's an argument to make more of what we rely on right here at home.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, so um, to that
1: end, how long would it take to reshore this technology with the, the type of proposal you're looking at? What would, what would this legislation look like?
4: Well, you know, it's taken 30 years to uh, create this problem and it's not going to be done in 30 days or maybe yeah, even 30 right. months but the key is that we need to start now the chip well, I mean, know it is-
1: takes years to to open a chip foundry you I'm guessing you wouldn't have that amount of lag time with the products you're talking about, no, I don't. you
4: would. I don't think so, but what we want to do is bring more of this work back on shore. Secretary Raimondo has talked about manufacturing nodes. And yes. what I think she's referring to there is a concentration of technology that brings you that end product. And so if you're gonna build a chip factory in Arizona, yeah. why not make the substrates, why not make the PCBs Absolutely. right there as well? You shouldn't have to guess what she means by that though. Are you in a dialogue with the Commerce Department? Absolutely, yep. they're very supportive of an expanded view of microelectronics manufacturing. I think they need to implement the CHIPS Act as it was written by Congress. But that's why we're working with a bipartisan coalition to bring forward our own legislation. It would fund at billions of dollars direct investment in PCB and substrate factories. And very importantly, it would bring a tax credit to the table for the OEMs, for the purchasers. It creates that buy American demand signal that's so critical for our industry. Well, that's important. And this would be for U.S. makers only, I presume. It would be for anybody making chips and substrates and boards, excuse me, boards and substrates in the United States. And it gets us back to a cost competitive uh, position with Asia. What's this coalition look like? How many people do you have on board? What's the geography look like? You know, we're in the states
1: it, where your makers
4: are located. Absolutely. PCB factories and substrate factories are all over the United States, uh-huh. sometimes in places that you might not expect. And that diverse coalition obviously brings us a good political footprint. It's uh, quite a story. Um, and I suspect you're going to be sitting in front of the China Select Committee
1: at some point. Is this on Chairman Gallagher's radar?
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that committee has recently released a port talk, report talking about 150 Critical technology areas, critical imperatives where we need to lead the United States. Mm -hmm. Number one, top of the list, our capacity to make microelectronics, including printed circuit boards. The committee is very aware of this issue, and we're hoping to talk to them soon. The chip makers have got to be behind you on this, right? They need these components to do their work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're focused, obviously, on what the CHIPS Act brings to the table for the direct investments we're seeing. Right, we're seeing these factories come online in places like Ohio and Arizona. They're Mm -hmm. focused on expanding capacity. We've got to be a partner for them in this. Well, I'm glad you could come talk to us about it
1: again. We'll stay in touch with David Child. It's the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. Yes, there is one. A conversation only here in Washington. David, it's good to see you and thank you again uh, for your time here on Bloomberg. Great to be here.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
1: We have the voice of Chuck Fleischman, the Republican from Tennessee's third, is with us here in studio at Bloomberg. Today, Congressman, it's great to see you. It's always Happy a pleasure Happy Fed to be Day. With That's you. like Christmas Day around here at Bloomberg. It's it, a big deal for us, of course. It is a big deal. And it deal. speaks to a lot of the fiscal issues that you've been dealing with in the House of Representatives. Yes. As we consider the fact, and you can tell me, this government is poised to shut down a month from today. Are we going to get a budget?
5: I think so. Uh, I'm optimist. I'm the eternal optimist. I am an appropriator. I chair the energy and water subcommittee of appropriations. So I'm in meetings with not only the Speaker of the House, but with all the other subcommittee chairs who we affectionately refer to as cardinals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the bills are easier than the others. The energy and water bill is a much easier bill than some of the others, uh, like labor, education, health and human services, um, homeland. But I do think we're going to get a budget. I don't think we're going to get a government shutdown. In my view, government shutdowns are always bad. Mm. I have worked through three. Mm. They always cost more money. They never work. And afterwards, uh, the country suffers for it. I suggest we get together, put together a, a budget deal that is not going to be ideal. Let's face it. We're almost well, half the year's halfway over, through. Right? Yeah. And it's it's not going to be the budget deal that I would write as a conservative Republican. But it's certainly not going to be a left-wing liberal Um, agenda. So it's going to be a blend, but we'll get that passed. And then we've got fiscal 2025 right on those heels.
1: Right. Well, that's what makes this almost an eye roll. My goodness, the minute you figure out a CR or a budget to to last the rest of the year, the president's doing his State of the Union and dropping a budget. And we start this whole cycle all over again. Do you have faith in the Republican conference and specifically in, in the speaker to navigate through these waters here?
5: I do. The Speaker was- Hasn't del- been coming there- easily, Congress. No, it's not. But think about the hand that the Speaker has been given. We started the election cycle, this Congress, with about a five-seat majority. Right now, uh, with the illnesses, with the people who are out, we That's have a right. one-seat working majority. <laughs> uh, with a conference with uh, three wings, a moderate wing, a center-right wing, which I belong to, mm. and a further right wing, all of whom I respect very much, then you've got the whole Democratic side of the aisle yeah. where we actually get little or no cooperation. So the environment is difficult. I applaud the speaker for the job that he's doing, given the hand that he has dealt on a plethora of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's doing the best job he can do given the circumstances. But let's get a budget passed. I I think we will, Uh, and and the worst thing that I think we could have is a shutdown. The second worst is a year-long CR, continuing resolution. Second worst. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's come up more than once.
1: That would result in an across-the-board cut. And an even more severe cut in defense spending. That's Absolutely. The issue here, right? In a very dangerous world yeah. at a very difficult time. You're right. Well, fair enough. How about we reach for something more positive? You're going to vote on something tonight, I understand. And a it's tax going to pass. Bill. That alone yes. is worth a headline. Yes. And
5: it's a tax deal that seems to be making both sides happy here. This is evidence that something can get done. Well, let me speak well of our friends on ways and means. Okay. As an appropriator, I'm going to say something nice about authorizers. They have worked very hard. Chairman Smith has worked very hard to come up with a deal that makes good sense. The tax extenders for research and development, which is very important to my great state of Tennessee, where we do so much of that work, not only um, in the private sector, but it is just so, so important. Uh, There's something really almost for everyone. It's a good bill. Once again, not the bill that. Uh, A conservative Republican would just draw outright. But the reality is, given a bitterly divided House, a bitterly divided Senate, Mm -hmm. and in in many ways a very uh, ambiguous, and I'll be kind, White House, getting this tax bill passed is important. I will be a yes vote. My constituents want it. I think it's good for the country. And it needs two thirds to pass. It sounds like it's going to get it. Yes, do you it, see this clearing yes. that hurdle? And and for our listeners, that means it will be coming up into what we call suspension. There right. will not be a precursor <laughs> rule. Why? Because the Republican House can't pass rules now. When I came to Congress, I would have never told John Boehner <laughs> I was going to vote against the rule. But that's yeah. another story for another day. This is Schoolhouse Rock with Chuck That's that, that, fantastic. That's exactly right. So, bottom line, it will be up on suspension. It does require two thirds. So you will see a large. I think bipartisan vote okay. and yeah. uh, and the Senate will comply,
1: and I think the president will sign it. The border matter seems to be a very different
5: story. Speaker says it's DOA in the house. is that true or, yes. or is there's no path for this. Not in its current form. The Speaker's right. Uh, In my prior life, my prior Congress, before I was able to accede to energy and water, for which I'm infinitely thankful, uh, I was the ranking member, highest Republican on Homeland Security appropriations. Mm -hmm. So I funded the wall. I did all of those things on Homeland. The reality is, from the inception, this administration has been an abysmal failure on the border. They incentivized illegal immigration. They took away the Trump era policies. This deal wouldn't uh, change that. Uh, no, it would not. And actually, the president has his own executive authority under the Constitution. Uh, in my view, and I think under existing Supreme Court precedent to basically fix all the mistakes that he's made. He could reinstate stay in Mexico. He could reinstate some of the other policies that would immediately secure the border. What I think, unfortunately, the president is doing, he's pandering for a political lifeline that has long left. Um, You know how
1: Democrats look at this? They say, listen, you guys have been asking for a deal on the border for a generation here. We're finally giving, we'll even talk about parole and because Donald Trump's on the phone with the speaker, it's not gonna happen because this is supposed to be uh, an election
5: year issue. Is that is that wrong? Is that misguided? I do think it's misguided. The reality is President Biden has been lost uh, from the beginning on the border. He's listened to his friends on the left who have, again, incentivized illegal immigration. Eight million illegals have come into this country and we don't know from where, uh, what their agendas are. Um, so this why not pass people, the bill on the border? Well, be, because the bill does not go far enough. It does okay. not do enough. And the easy answer is follow the existing laws on the books. Decentivize disin- uh, uh, illegal immigration. You want HR2. Uh, I want HR2. And, and we should have had look HR2. Like that.
1: Then again, we um, haven't even seen text yet.
5: Yes. Are you confident what's in this deal? No, uh, I, I am not. Uh, in, in terms of what the Senate is trying to do, again, I think it's an abysmal failure. But you're uh, confident that you know what's in the deal. You're hearing yes, from we've heard enough things. From your is, office. It's, rather, it's rather nebulous, and I'm hearing from our constituents. The American people don't want a Band-Aid on a, st- on a stab wound. Yeah. The American people are going to hold Biden-Harris responsible in November for the failure on the border and really putting our country at risk.
1: Well, so then, of course, begs the question, Congressman, as we spend time with Chuck Fleischman of Tennessee, what happens to Ukraine? Would there be a standalone effort to help our ally in a hot war with Russia?
5: Well, uh, I think we have to talk about border. We have to talk about Israel. One of my things is I want to see Israel get a supplemental. Well, Joe Biden says, I already uh, sent you that request for all of that, and it got shot down. And and understanding that the offset for the IRS was a good idea. I applaud Mm -hmm. the speaker for doing that. But it's dead on arrival in the Senate. Let's look at the political reality. We've got to get something for Israel. I think that is critically important. Having said that, with Ukraine— Ultimately, I think there will be some type of an aid package. Uh, These may end up having to be standalones. But the border is very important. Israel is important. And Ukraine is important. Uh, Our allies are looking to us. But there's so many things going on. And I hate to be partisan right now. The the pausing of the, the natural gas deal was just devastating to me. Um, and, and and to our allies. And I think uh, we just wonder what direction is this administration going? Sadly, further and further left. Um, Are you encouraged to see us, though, as the world's lead exporter of
1: natural gas? This is an administration that is typically criticized for not allowing the
5: industry... Uh, to increase production, we're at an all-time high right now. And we need to continue to be. Once again, basic economics. Uh, if, if your station is famous for something, it's, it's great economics, right? Supply and demand. There's, there is <laughs> abundant oil, natural gas resources in this country. We need to incentivize production. We will do that I know Donald Trump will do that. Mm. We'll say maybe not day one, but probably day three. He'll fix the border on day one uh, and maybe a host <laughs> of the other day things. That's the thing. he's a dictator, yes. right? <laughs> uh, I heard drill, baby, drill. <laughs> well, well uh, they, you know,
1: we've seen reviews like this before where they didn't have to stop the expansion. Would that be a more uh appropriate move for you? Do the review, but— allow the industry to continue to grow.
5: The, the industry has got to grow. We've this got is the to LNG reviewers. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and all of the above, LNG, uh, petroleum, we've got abundant resources in this country. There are oil fields in Texas that dwarf the size of the oil fields in Saudi Arabia. We've got these resources produce it. We will drive the price down. It will be. We want to incentivize it. I want American oil producers and natural gas producers to make money. We're capitalists. We want to incentivize that. If they make money, stockholders make money, the economy will grow, and we can get back to common sense mm-hmm. business practices in this country. Again, there used to be a time when Republicans and Democrats disagreed on certain issues, but on the core issues of keeping our economy strong and mm-hmm. keeping our, our resources flowing. We were together, and our country moved forward. I want to get to that point again. You
1: talk about your time on the Homeland Security Committee. i got a headline on my phone at 1 o'clock in the morning. Committee votes to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. And it's interesting, the tentacles of all these stories are intertwined, because he's at the table in these border negotiations. And it looks like this is going to come to the floor next week. Will you vote to have him impeached?
5: I want to look at what the committee does, and so I can make a distinction. That is the Homeland Security uh, Standing Authorization Committee. Mm-hmm. I was the ranking member on the Homeland Security appropriation subcommittee. So I was the funder. I funded yeah. the wall, uh, funded ice beds, funded all the different things that sadly this administration did not take up, whether it's technology or otherwise, to secure the border. You have a good sense of but, this, though. Does, does firing the secretary do anything to change the policy behind him? Well, I think the problem starts with with President Biden, candidly. It starts at the top. So what, what, May, what, what difference would it has make? Been, well, I, I think Mayorkas, and I know Ali, could have done a better job in following the law, enforcing the law, yeah. and doing things to disincentivize illegal immigration. So you believe he further
1: weakened the border as an individual Absolutely. member of the
5: administration? Absolutely. But he's getting his orders from up top. Uh, Harry Truman said the buck stops here. Yeah. The buck stops with Joe Biden on the border. It's his failure. Uh, Mayorkas is basically the failed messenger.
1: I need to ask you about, lastly, something that you're working on. I only have a minute. Sure. We're trying to get our arms around AI. You just announced a a quantum computing partnership with the private
5: sector. Is that the way we get to this? Absolutely. Um, Chattanooga, the greatest mid-sized city in America, perhaps the world, my home city, Uh, through uh, EPB, working with our great national lab, which I fund through the Energy and Water Subcommittee, Oak Ridge National Lab, the strongest of the 17 national labs. I bring people together, great minds together. So we have quantum computing technology Mm -hmm. with quantum computing, commercial network mm-hmm. they're coming together they're working together one of a kind in the nation yes that's how we get there we want to commercialize it we want to make it there for all americans it, it's going
1: to require a partnership with the private sector though is the point government's not going to be able to do it absolutely the but government has a role as does the private sector and our local state and federal leaders congressman chuck fleischman from tennessee's third great to see you here at bloomberg come back and see us again on the radio on the satellite on youtube this is bloomberg Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.